All right. Well, welcome Coastline family, the uh, few and faithful that have come here to be here live. Yes. And uh, got a hamburger dinner tonight with some awesome sides. So you guys that are watching online, you missed out. And I am going to make you feel like you missed out because you should have been here. Um, It was a glorious dinner in the sunshine outside. But uh, we are glad you could tune in for our um, last Thursday of the month that we dedicate to uh, questions and answers or basically answering questions that people have asked the best we can utilizing the Bible. And uh, uh, thank you guys for submitting more questions. Um, We have gotten a backlog of them now, so um, we're kind of going through them as fast as we can, but we won't we aren't able to get to them every night, so we have some that will carry over next month. But don't let that stop you from asking questions because we will eventually get to it. So with that said, uh, I'm just going to pray, and then we're going to get right into these questions that we're answering tonight. So uh, dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, thank you for this opportunity to open up your word and um, see what it has to say about these questions people have. Lord, again, uh, even as we heard on Sunday, your word always is truth. Um, you know, there can be everyone in the world saying it's wrong, but the fact is they're wrong and you're right. And because of that, we always want to look to your word to guide us in any questions we might have. So, Lord, that's our heart tonight. And I pray you'd help us do that, Lord, and that you be glorified in the process. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, I think tonight, uh, well, let me introduce everyone we have here. So we have Matt Bellingham, who is uh, one of uh, our lead deacon. And uh, also we have um, Eric Curtis, and he is our men's Bible study teacher and one of our elders. And uh, Michael Slivkoff, he's one of our associate pastors. And then I'm Chris, I'm a nobody. So um, <laughs> I'm a pastor here as well. So uh, again, let's just go ahead and um, dive right in. So I'm, I'm going to start out tonight, and I've got uh, kind of a, a practical question. I thought it was a good one, so I'm going to try to explain it the, the best I can. Um, so the question was, how do I lean not on my own understanding when God has given me free will? Okay, well, uh, because you have free will you can lean on your own understanding or make decisions based off of what you think is best. But I think the better question is, should you do that knowing that God is sovereign or in control of your circumstances? Now, I want to go back to the verse, uh, Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, where that phrase, lean on your own understanding, comes from, so we can kind of see the context of the scripture. It says in Proverbs 3, starting in verse 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. So biblically, where that that phrase is used, it's telling us that instead of leaning on your own understanding and kind of the idea there is like we have a perception of any given thing that's happening in our life based off of what we know and what we see and what this passage is telling us to do is don't just lean on that don't just trust on what you 
perceive or what you can see or what you can understand. Instead, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And the idea is trust in him fully. Trust in everything he's told you in his word, all of his promises, which a lot of the times that and your understanding don't, they, they kind of clash because like God makes these promises, like he's working all things for your good. And based off your perception, it doesn't look good what's happening or it doesn't look like it could be worked for your good. So this is blatantly telling you like, well, don't trust only in what you see. Trust even above that in the Lord and what he says. And in all your ways, acknowledge him. And the idea is like, you know, put what he says above what you understand and, and actually seek him. Like seek him, like if you don't understand, seek him for wisdom, seek him for leading, seek him for guidance. And he'll make your path straight. Like he'll, he'll give you the understanding you need. He'll give you the direction you need. That's kind of the idea. And one of the, you know, one of the reasons I think we sh- it's wise to do this is because our understanding, it's always limited, right? We don't know everything. God is omniscient, or it means he, all, he knows everything, past, present, and future. Nothing slips his attention or his mind. And so obviously his decisions or what he's doing is way more well-informed than ours ever could be, okay? And then also, um, uh, God has said that he has a good, pleasing, and perfect will for you in Romans 12 too. That's his intent for anything he wants to do in your life. And he can make sure that that comes to pass because he's also omnipotent or he's all powerful. So knowing those things, knowing that God knows everything and he's capable of doing anything, that in my mind makes it make more sense to not trust in your understanding, but trust God in his word instead, right? To lean, it makes a lot of sense if you know who God is and what he's capable of and what he's promised you, not to lean on your own understanding, but instead trust in him. And at the end of the day, that takes faith, basically. It takes belief in God and what he said. And actually in Romans four, it gives us a great example of somebody that did just that that in a situation where according to their understanding or their perception of things, it, it it wasn't a good situation, but God had told them differently and they, they, they obeyed him because of faith in what he said. And this is, we'll talk about this in more detail on, on Sunday, but I'm gonna read the passage. It says Romans 4, 17 through 21. That is what the scriptures mean when God told him, I have made you the father of many nations. This happened because Abraham believed it, the God who brings the dead back to life and who creates new things out of nothing. Even when there was no reason for hope, Abraham kept hoping, believing that he would become the father of many nations. For God had said to him, that's how many descendants you will have. And Abraham's faith did not weaken, even though at about 100 years of age, he figured his body was as good as dead, and so was Sarah's womb. But Abraham never wavered in believing God's promise. In fact, his faith grew stronger. And in this, he brought glory to God. He was fully convinced that God was able to do whatever he promises. So I love that story. If you guys are familiar with the Bible with Abraham, you know, here's, God makes him a promise way back when God first reveals himself to him and says, you're going to be the father of many nations. The idea is you're going to have offspring and those offspring are going to have offspring and, and a lot of, you know, a lot of people are going to come from you. Um, and he didn't have offspring for a long time, not, not till he was like, like up in age basically. And so there was a whole lot of years between that promise was made and it was actually fulfilled, but
but it tells us that his faith never wavered. It actually grew stronger. I mean, the longer he had to wait, the more that, you know, again, his own understanding would have told him this is not going to happen. He actually trusted and believed God at his word. No, God said this, so this is how it's gonna be. This is how it's gonna happen. I read this quote a couple weeks ago, but I wanna read it again because I I love what it, it gives us an example of what true faith is. And it says, but faith is not trusting or expecting God to do something, but relying on his testimony concerning the person of Christ as his son and the work of Christ for us on the cross. After saving faith, the life of trust begins. Trust is always looking forward to what God will do, but faith sees that what God has, God, what God says has been done and believes God's word, having the conviction that it is true and true for ourselves. Faith basically believes that what God has told you will come to pass, as Abraham did, and knowing the promises that he has made to you and his word will come to pass gives you every reason to trust him instead of leaning on your own limited understanding. And if you're struggling with leaning on your own understanding, typically that also means that you're probably worried about things, you're probably anxious because they kind of go hand in hand. And Paul also tells us what to do when that is the case, when you're experiencing that in your life. In Philippians 4, 6 through 7, he says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. So basically what he says is pray according to God's will or ask God to keep his promises to you thanking him for all the previous times he has kept his promises to you. And as John tells us in 1 John 5, 14 through 15, and we can be confident that he hears us whenever we ask for anything, anything that pleases him. And since we know he hears us, when we make our requests, we also know that he'll give us what we ask for. And when you do that, when you pray according to his will, when you pray according to his promises, you know he's gonna answer. And this will lead to peace as we wait for him to answer and make our paths straight, you know, yet again in our lives as he's surely capable of. Hopefully that makes sense. Who would like to go next? So I got a really long question. I think there's a central part, but uh, I'll read off the sections to you. So uh, this first part starts with Paul and Barnabas' disagreement from Acts 15. And I'll just sum up real quick. Paul and Barnabas's, Barnabas's, Barnabas, Barnabas were uh, missionary partners, as you might remember. And they go out on a missionary journey, and one of the people they take with them on their first trip is this guy named Mark, who's Barnabas's relative, probably his cousin. And uh, But on their first trip, Mark, it's kind of tough. There's a lot of hard things that are happening. Mark's a young guy, and he kind of pieces out. Apparently, it got too hard for him or something. He goes home early, he quits. So I don't know if you've ever been on a, in a hard project with somebody, and they quit on you. You know, you're working, and they're just like, I'm done. This is too much, and I'm out. You know, usually it doesn't leave a very good taste. So anyway... When they get around to their second missionary journey, uh, Paul's like, we should go back and check on these churches we planted. And Barnabas is like, that's a great idea. Let's take Mark. And Paul's like, there's no way I'm taking that guy with me. And it says that a sharp uh, uh, contention in the King James or disagreement in a different translation was so sharp that they departed asunder or they separated from each other. And then it says that Barnabas takes Mark and they go out on a missionary trip. We don't see them again really in the book of Acts. And uh, Paul takes another guy, Silas, and they head out on another trip. Uh, So there's this disagreement between two leaders of the church. And um, this creates a lot of questions for people. So that's 
where this questioner is um, bringing this up and saying, hey, look, here's an example of a disagreement between two good believers, so to speak, right? And how do we think about that? So he says this, that, or that he or she, whoever wrote the question, it appears as Christians that differences resulting in contentions are inevitable at some level involving preferences or opinions. This should never involve the basics of gospel doctrine or trivial matters. And then he gives a quote from Titus 3, uh, but avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law for their unprofitable in vain. So they say, hey, you know, looks like there's going to be conflict between Christians. And if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you know that there are things that you see differently from the people you go to church with or other Christians, right? That's not really a new idea. But there are the questions that the person wrote from that. Question number one, when Christians leave a fellowship, what effort or efforts should be made by the leadership or non-leaders to bring unity to the body of Christ. So they're saying, hey, when a Christian leaves a fellowship, probably like a church fellowship, what effort or efforts should be made by either the leaders or the people from the church to bring unity to Christ's body? So um, I'll start there. And I think there's a few things we have to say. So um, in the background of this, this idea of bringing unity, uh, you might look at Ephesians 4, 3 through 6, which says, among other things, He's, uh, Paul's writing them, he's urging them. He says, be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And then he goes on in that and lists off these sort of essential doctrines about the Christian faith. So he says, hey man, you need to strive to be unified around these things. So I think that's in the background for this, the questioner here. But I would say in answering that question, what needs to be determined is why and how is there a separation? Why and how did someone leave the fellowship? So I'm gonna give you some examples. I, I take it, if you're listening, if you're the questioner, that your background is this situation with Mark and Barnabas, and I'll get to that. But I think because the way this question's phrased is a little broader, it'll be helpful if we answer it from that perspective. So here are some ways that people leave. Sometimes, I'm gonna take these from the most severe <laughs> down to maybe the, the more least severe. Sometimes separation is prescribed, that is the church or the leadership says, hey, you can't come, and that that prescribed separation is protective. It's prescribed protective. So Paul writes, for example, in 1 Corinthians 5, there's an example where a guy was sleeping with his mother-in-law, and the Corinthian church was like kind of good with it. And Paul writes to them and says, you guys, this is wrong. This is open sin. And it's not a sin this guy's struggling with trying to get free. He's just like, hey, I'm sleeping with my mother-in-law. It's cool, right? And Paul says, no way, this is wrong. And you need to deal with this in a particular way. And if since, since he's apparently not willing to repent, change his mind about sin, he's trying to walk in sin, then you need to remove him. And part of the reason Paul says that is because he says a little leaven, he quotes from um, the Old Testament, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, like sin is an infectious disease. Um, so sometimes there are times in the body of Christ where somebody choosing sin, and I want to be really careful here, not struggling with sin, trying to be free, but their attitude is to justify it, to say it's good, to celebrate it, to say, accept me, including my alcoholism, gossip, abuse, whatever it is. I'm just picking, you know, you could pick any sin, really. If a person says, I don't want to submit that to Christ, I want to live in that, then the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 5 and in Matthew 18, where Jesus lays out this principle where you would go to a brother and show them their, their fault in private and then take a witness with you and then deal with it as a church, that there's a time to separate. So I would say in a case like that, if we had somebody, let's just pick on me. Let's say tomorrow I decide that I'm gonna start stealing money from the church. 
and the guys find out about it and they come to me and they're like, Michael, it seems like you've been opening up the safe and taking money from you know, God's people's gifts to the Lord. Now, I might say, you guys, I'm so sorry. It was this one time and I was so, I was so wrong. I've been just absolutely you know, destroyed about it. I'm, you know, they might say, well, you're never gonna help count the tithe again, but we love you and we'd love for you to continue at church. It might be a way to restore me in that way, right? But if I'm like, no, you don't pay me enough money and I deserve more. I'm just gonna keep taking money from the offering, whatever I want. It would be really good if they said, well, please turn in your keys and you can't come to church here if you're gonna steal money from Jesus. You can see that, right? Or, if, or other situations, if you had a guy who was like, um, you know, trying to hurt children or something like that. We had a case for a while once. There was a guy that we started hearing things and seeing things that made us look like he was not a safe guy towards kids. And we said, hey, we want to meet with you. And he wanted no part of any accountability or being connected with the leadership. And we said, okay, well, you can't come until you're willing to walk with us. And we really look back and see that as a place where the Lord intervened to protect our church. So I could tell you more stories than that, but that's the first case is sometimes it's protective. And in that case, my attitude towards a person wouldn't be to go and pursue them because we've already laid out the basis of our disagreement. Like, hey man, if you're choosing sin, then you can't be here because we're trying to follow Jesus. So the door would be open if you change your mind and want to come back, that'd be great, we'd love to have you. But you've got to repent and want to follow Christ because that's literally the purpose of why we meet. So follow, learn to follow Jesus. We're not doing it perfectly, but that's our aim. So that's the first one. Um, the second one is sometimes people leave on their own because of a desire to pursue sin. So you don't even get to church discipline or a conversation about it. They just kind of fade away and disappear. And I'll just, this may be a warning for someone. We were praying about this. Matt brought this up in our elder prayer yesterday about how it's easy for any of us to be distracted and drawn off by the deceitfulness of sin is the way the Bible phrases it. But Proverbs 18.1 is a favorite verse for me. In the New American, it says, he who separates himself seeks his own desire. He who separates himself seeks his own desire. And if you've been a Christian for a while, you may have seen this where someone has something in their life that they really want and they already know what the Bible says, what the body of Christ is saying about that thing, but they really want it. And so they just sort of slowly fade and disappear and pull out of fellowship in order to go do that thing. I think there's a good example of this in Genesis 38 with the story of Judah. There's this uh, Judah, one of um, Jacob's sons, right? Paul says he, he departs from his brothers. He departs from his brothers and he goes with this guy, this worldly guy who's his friend. And while he's there, he engages with prostitutes and these various things, winds up impregnating his own daughter-in-law. It's a long sordid story, obviously, uh, but that's a great example of a guy pulling away from the fellowship of God's people and getting himself into a lot of trouble. Um, so in those cases, sometimes I think you can, if you have a relationship with them, you could go to them and say, hey man, what's going on? But sometimes they already know. They've made their choice because they know what they wanna do. And I'll give you another example that's less dramatic perhaps, but in Mark chapter 10, you have the story of Jesus and the rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler comes to him and says, hey, what do I gotta do to follow you? And Jesus lists off some of the 10 commandments. And the guy's like, dude, I've kept all those since I was a kid. And he says, well, last thing you lack is um, sell your stuff basically and come follow me, you'll have treasure in heaven. And says a young man went away sad because he possessed a lot of stuff. And you don't see, this is notable to me, narrative, to, so I gotta be careful, but you don't see Jesus go after him. He doesn't chase him down and say, oh man, come on, just, just walk with me a little bit. We'll talk about this later. He lets him make his choice and go because at that time for that young man, evidently his stuff was kind of an idol in his life. He's, he's gonna go chase that down, right? So I think that there, if you have a relationship with that person, maybe you know someone who's separating, it'd be good to go to them and say, hey man, what's going on? We'd love to have you. But sometimes it's clear the reason they're pulling away is they want to pursue sin 
and the Lord allows us to make those choices. Sometimes, Stephen's taught me this from some of his testimony and people he's worked with, that one of the best things you can do for someone is to let them run their course, because if they don't hit bottom, if they don't experience the consequences, you know, sin, it hurts us. It takes longer for them to repent and come back. And so you're not encouraging that, but you're just saying, if that's the road you wanna run, run it. I'll be here for you if you turn around and wanna follow Christ. But Sometimes we feel like, oh, we get so almost like insecure about somebody leaving and making their own choices that we get in this weird spot. So sometimes that's, uh, that can happen. First um, John chapter 2, 19, John the apostle writes and says that sometimes people go out from us because they're not really of us. There may be some people who claim Christ but leave because they were never saved. So that's another kind of way that people leave. Uh, sometimes people leave, and this is probably the trickiest situation, and I'll just say it's a personal situation. And some examples of that can be hurt feelings, right? You, uh, you came to talk to me about something important. You did it on Sunday, you know, after church while I'm trying to do 18 things, and I didn't seem very attentive to you. And you're like, man, Michael Slivkoff does not care about me. He's an absolute jerk. I'm leaving the church, right? Now, I didn't mean to hurt your feelings. Maybe I should have been more attentive, but I was running, you know, to put out a fire in the children's ministry and deal with the water leak over here. And, you know, this person's asking me questions and I was just frazzled and I hurt your feelings. And so sometimes people leave for hurt feelings. Those cases, it is good. If you hear about it, say, hey man, Matt, I'm really sorry. I, I heard that, and then he can say to me, Michael, man, I just felt like you didn't care. Matt, I'm so sorry. Can we meet? I, that wasn't my intention. So hurt feelings, sometimes you can address those, sometimes you can't. Sometimes there's misunderstandings. Um, that are similar to that, that you can address if you get wind of them. Sometimes it's just grief. Um, sometimes folks who've lost someone in a profound way will just make a lot of, make some changes. You know, I can think of a lady who was a pastor's wife at a church and her husband died, you know, while, while pastoring the church. And she felt like afterwards it was better for her just to move to another fellowship. It was just hard for her to be there. I'm not saying it's the right choice or anything, but it's just hard for her. So I wouldn't go to her and try to twist her arm or make her come back. She's going through grief, you know? So anyways, sometimes it's that kind of a thing. Sometimes it's a change of direction with a church or a change of leader or family dynamics. Hey, my kids need to go to a youth group. Um, those things are all personal situations. And I really think it can vary a lot how you deal with that. Um, I, I think it's okay. We need to let people make choices. They just don't feel like we have to chase them down. And that's the second half of the question, which says to bring unity to the body of Christ. And my question would be, does separation always mean that there isn't unity? Do you think that's true? So let me give you, can you think of some examples maybe where separation is actually not only not an example of disunity, but a good thing? What do you think? How about, here's one, easy one. Yeah, go ahead. No, no. Missions. We send people out from us, they literally separate from us and go overseas far away. And we're like, we celebrate that. So that absence of uh, proximity or closeness doesn't mean a breaking in fellowship. We might even be unified in our mission. Or even planting a church. Or planting a church. I was just gonna say, planting a church is, a, is on my list. Good one. Um, what else have I got in here? Oh, people get called to another job. Our Coast Guard families leave. I'm not gonna chase the guy down who's got orders and be like, listen, bro, you are breaking the unity of the spirit because the Coast Guard is telling you to move across. No, that'd be weird, right? Unity doesn't equal proximity. And also, listen, sometimes I think, and I can think we can establish this, separation is a way of preserving unity, right? So think of Abraham and Lot. Do you remember Abraham and Lot? The Bible says in Genesis 13 that the land can't support all of what they both had going on. And so Abraham meets with Lot and says, let's separate, and here's the reason, for we are brothers. 
It's because of their relationship and his desire to preserve that that he says, let's separate so we can keep our relationship. So let's just make an example. Let's say tomorrow I'm like, listen, Pastor Chris, I'm just convinced that all of our children's ministry workers need to wear clown suits. I'm convinced of it. That's the way children's ministry should be. Chris will probably try hard not to laugh at me and then say, Michael, we really don't believe that that's a good move. And I'm like, listen, Chris, that is how it has to be. I'm just convinced God is calling me to a children's ministry of all clowns. And there might reach a point where he says, Michael, I love you. You're my brother. We've served a long time, but I really just don't think that's what God's doing here. And Lord be with you. Start a clown children's ministry. Somehow maybe God can use it for good, you know? We might separate so that we can preserve our unity rather than continue that conflict, if that makes sense. So I think there's a, an error sometimes where we assume that separation means a break in unity. And then the last one, um, let's see, I guess I, maybe I did get through all of them. Do you guys think I missed any? This is the question I really wanna make sure. I'll, I'll say this, maybe this will clue it for you. I have found for me that a really good metaphor for thinking about church life in so many capacities, including this, is to think of it as a family. Why? The Bible uses those examples. By new birth, a child comes into a family. By marriage, we're the body of Christ. Or by adoption, we've been adopted into the family of God. We are a family. And family sometimes separates for all of these reasons. You know, you could have a child who becomes a drug addict and is actually dangerous to the rest of the siblings, and you may, for protective reasons, separate from that child, not because you don't love them, but because you do, that you want them to reach the end of their rope and come home, and you wanna protect the other children from those effects. That's hard, but you do it. There can be times when a child grows up, is ready to become a man or a woman, and you say, it's time. We want you to go out, not because we don't love you, but because we do. We wanna continue this relationship, but you're gonna start your own family, and that's good, and you celebrate that. It doesn't mean you're in each other's business in the same way you were before, but you're still family. You're just separate, immediate families, right? The separate churches, I can think of churches in our community that I would consider family, but I'm not in all their business. They're not all in my business. They're the way these guys are. I confess sin to these guys. We pray for each other. It's a much more unified thing, a more intimate thing in this sense, in this immediate family than in the, the larger extended family of God. So that's been really helpful for me. And knowing too that sometimes in family, families disagree. Do you guys have family that you disagree about, you know, se separate issues on, like how you discipline children or bedtimes or what you watch or any of those things? And so there's times where you're like, we just do things different in our household. I love you, you love me, but we just do things a little bit differently. And that's not an absence of unity. It's just a difference. One thing that I was thinking about just as you were sharing is a lot of times, especially from a leadership standpoint, maybe sometimes even from, even if you're not in leadership, you've been in the church for a long time, there's a tendency to focus on who's not in church. Or there's a tendency to be like, why is this person not there? Why is this person not here? Da, 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 da. When the reality is, sometimes we focus too much on that. Why did they leave? Where did they go? What happened? But when the Lord's give us a ministry of brothers and sisters all around us, right in front of us, who want Christ, who we can fellowship with, dis disciple, be discipled by, when there's work to do with people, with our family, mm -hmm. when we're, sometimes I'm just all spun out, worried about why these people aren't here. And, and then that also kind of led me to the next thing is like, is just prayer. Like if you really wanna chase these people down, the most powerful thing we can do is pray for them. And, um, you know, and I'm not saying there's not a time to chase people down. Like, sure. I love the yeah. point that Michael made. Sometimes it is a ministry. Like, we do need to find these people and say, hey, what's up, man? You know, call them out. And, and maybe persistently, like, that's, there's definitely a time and place to do that. But even that, 
will be of no effect without the moving of God's spirit on that person's heart. And so prayer is just, it's just essential for any ministry really, but I would say especially even for that. Like, so just a little comment. Yeah, I was just going to add like uh, one of the n- negative things I've just experienced that I'd, I think I've learned over time in being careful about chasing people down or trying to convince people to stay that want to go is that, and it kind of goes back to the Paul and Barnabas example, I think it uses terminology, they had like a sharp contention, and then they separated. You know, I can think of a couple instances where people just had a sharp contention over the the way we were doing ministry, and this isn't like, like accusing us of doing something, you know, uh, that was heretical. It was just like, you know, I think you should do this, kind of like the kids' ministry example, I think you should be doing it this way okay, well, you know, we can pray about that, but, you know, this is the way that we feel like the Lord wants us to do it. And they were just adamant that it was wrong um, because it wasn't the way they would do it. And so, you know, these were people I really cared about. And like, it's like, okay, well, maybe we can just, you know, agree to disagree. Like, you know, unity doesn't have to equal uniformity, you know, and trying to convince them to stay. And what that turned into was a person staying that really didn't want to stay and, there were murmuring and complaining going on behind the scenes, which created opportunities for the enemy to create dissension and division. And it turned into something that probably had a, I just, all right, well, you know, I, I love you. I wish you, you know, stay. I wish we could just be unified, even if we disagree on this. But if you feel like the Lord wants you to go, then you got to go, you know, do what the Lord's telling you to do. And um, if I would have handled it that way, in, in looking back, I wish I would have, it could have avoided it turning into something where the enemy kind of, you know, did a bunch of damage um, because they stayed around longer than they should have. So, uh, so two things I want to say to whoever asked the question. I do realize often these questions come from a specific example or context. If I'm not answering your question, I'd like to. So feel free to hit me up. We can get coffee and go over that. Um, I just this quote I've given before. I think it's attributed to Augustine, but in essentials. We always want unity, you know, be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit, the bond of peace. So the essential things about who Jesus is, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his deity, his all-sufficient work for sin, it's by grace through faith alone through the new birth of the spirit. These are essential doctrines, his return. But there's a lot of things beyond that that are secondary issues. They're important, but they're secondary. And so the quote says, in non-essentials, liberty, we give each other freedom and room to see those differently. Sometimes that includes separating because we just can't see things quite the same way. doesn't mean we're not unified. We just see it different. And then all things charity and all things we give love. So uh, so hopefully that's it. I was going to say, um, I guess that's it. The last questions I think move a lot quicker. Going back to the specific example the person had in mind, Paul and Barnabas, he said, do you think Paul was wrong <laughs> to disagree with Barnabas about taking John Mark? So Acts is narrative literature. We've talked about this before. There's nothing prescribed in the book of Acts. It's just an accurate historical telling of what happened between these men. The Bible does not say who's right. I'll tell you that people tend to read into this story their own perspective as we're prone to. So you've got people who are like, oh, Barnabas was right. He was the guy showing God's grace. Isn't God a God of second chances? Maybe he said to Paul, how dare you not, you know, give a second chance to Mark when I'm the one that brought you in, when no one would, you know, maybe it was that way. And they'll say, and look, Paul says later in life, bring me Mark. He's useful to me in ministry. So see, Barnabas was right. 
And then other people say, no, Paul was right. Like, look at what happens in the story. The church lays hands not on Barnabas and Mark, but on Paul and Silas. The church gives their endorsement to that missions team. They go forward. They're the only ones we read about in Acts after that. We don't read about. So neither of these have really hold perfect water. They're just perspectives that people have. So I think the right answer, as we've said from the beginning of our Q&As, is not to exceed what's written and say, we don't know. <laughs> but that's how people do it. The last question is, do you think God's overarching plan was to use this disagreement to send Paul and Barnabas in different directions? And I would say yes with a question mark. Depends on what you mean by God's overarching plan. So Romans 8.28 says that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So if you're asking, do I think God used Paul and Barnabas as separate teams? I absolutely do. The Bible says in Ephesians 1.11 that he works all things after the counsel of his will. But let me just throw this in there because I think it will help you with this question as well as just in general. When we use the term God's will in the English language, there's, there's actually at least three categories of what we mean by God's will. And those three, here are some theological terms you might run into. The decree of God, or sometimes you'll hear the decretive, which sounds weird. It's not decretive, it's decretive, but the decree of God's will, God's perfect will, and God's permissive will. What does that mean? Well, let me use an example from my own life about ice cream. So if I say to you that I'm going to leave church tonight and get ice cream, I'm giving you the decree of my will, that I will get in my Prius and drive to Fred Meyer on my way home and buy a pint of coffee ice cream by Haagen-Dazs, and I will sit in my recliner and eat it and feed my flesh until I fall asleep. That's my will. I've decided it's going to happen. Uh, my perfect will might be to say, Ah, oh, you know what I really desire is that I would go home and, you know, because I'm fighting a sore throat, just drink some water and go to bed early and get a good night's sleep. That's my perfect will. That's what I should do. That's the best outcome. And the permissive will might be whatever I allow to happen. That's kind of a bad example. So God has things that he's decreed. He says, for example, Jesus is coming back. He's going to land on Mount, um, shoot, the Mount of Olives and split it in two. And he's going to rule and reign from Jerusalem. He's decided that. doesn't matter what you and I do doesn't matter what governments rise or fall, such a comforting thing. God has decided that's going to happen. It's also his uh, perfect will to have you and I walk in righteousness. His perfect will is that you and I would never sin. But he gives us a choice to decide whether or not we're going to do that. Does that make sense? So it's his desire, if you will. You might say his perfect will is his desire. He's not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance, right, from Second Peter. So it's his desire that all should be saved but, and, and, and not be lost. And his permissive will is whatever he allows to happen. So think of the book of Job where Satan comes before God and says, hey, the only reason Job trusts you is because you've been so good to him. And God says, okay, I'm going to allow, I'll permit you to do these things to Job. God isn't causing that. God isn't doing any of it. Satan is doing it, but he's permitting uh, Satan to do certain things. So God permits things in the world, but puts boundaries around that. He has a perfect will, a desire that we would follow, and a decree in what he's declared. So I would say certainly, what do we see here in this example? It's definitely within his permissive will. He permitted it to happen. Um, and he definitely used it for good. But whether it was his decree, I'd say no. Um, and whether it was his perfect will, that I, I couldn't say. So I doubt it. How's that? I think I would officially take the, on the question number three, take the agree with Michael about we don't know if it was wrong for Barnabas, or if Barnabas was wrong, or if Saul was wrong, or whatever, but it's just, to me, it just fits too perfect with the, with the first question about lean not on your own understanding, you know, in all, in all your ways, uh, acknowledge him, he'll make your path straight, where in Paul, 
when he saw this uh, young guy, John Mark, in, in his own understanding of his past experience with him, it was, oh, this guy is a flake, this guy's a loser, um, we're hardcore missionaries, and we're going to go out and do this, and we ain't taking him. And um, that's what made sense to him. And, you know, I'm not saying that wasn't the Lord's will or whatever, but that maybe you maybe could say that was his own understanding of the situation in John Mark. And an example of not leaning on his own understanding, but acknowledging God in all his ways, he might have said, I'm going to humble myself. Like it says in Ephesians 4, which actually Paul wrote, (laughs) I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to be gentle with this guy. I'm going to be patient with this guy. I'm going to bear with him in love and demonstrate eagerness to maintain the unity of the spirit. And we're going to, we're going to bear with them and go do this thing. So maybe that could have been an example of lean on on your own understanding. Was he wrong? I don't know. Just something I thought of. So, Okay. <laughs> yeah, we had an emergency earlier today. The uh, ran out of ink in both of our printers, so. It was not God's perfect will, it was permissive will, yeah. Okay, so um, my first question here is, uh, is cremation after death biblical since it says our bodies will be resurrected? And so um, just right off the bat, I'm just going to say this, is that there's no prohibition of cremation in the Bible that I know of, nor is there a requirement of a... Uh, burial in the ground of any kind, uh, prescribed, uh, as Michael would put it, in Scripture. And so the question is this, is um, because the Bible says that we will be resurrected, which the Bible does say this, uh, Luke, uh, sorry, uh, Jesus taught this in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 20, 34, and one of uh, several, just one of many places and then also in First Thessalonians 4, just a couple of examples, it says um, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. In First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, um, it says the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So the point is this. The Bible does teach that those who have put their faith in Christ and died and been buried or uh, committed to the ground in whatever way they were, um, there will be a resurrection at the second coming of Jesus Christ. This is our blessed hope as Christians. Amen? And um, so this is a thing. So the question is this, is that, okay, so if I'm buried in the ground, my body is intact, so to speak, um, when Jesus comes back, my body will be raised up and I'll be resurrected and God will restore my body somehow into a resurrection body. But if I'm cremated and burned and my bones are pulverized into dust and spread out in the air, there's nothing left to resurrect. So do I have hope of the resurrection if I'm cremated? This is the question, I think. And again, nothing prescriptive one way or the other, but just a couple places where um, uh, burial is talked about. And actually, traditionally, burial was the norm, especially in ancient cultures. And even today, I guess you could say it's um, probably the the normal, most common thing that happens. I did read a little article that for the first time ever recently, 
it seems that I think it's about 50.2% of people in some nationwide poll, I don't know what it was, but there's 50.2% of people um, in recent years, just in the last year or two, actually would prefer to be cremated and, you know, have their ashes scattered versus being buried, which is a trend that's very different from the past. It was, it's always been more people would prefer to be buried, of course. Um, and this goes back all the way to Genesis. It says in Genesis 23, Abraham bought a burial plot and buried his wife in a cave there, okay? And there's many references to the burial of the dead and um, that, and that this, this idea of being buried with your body intact is sort of like, it's almost like um, an indication of that, like, man, my hope is that I'm going to be resurrected someday. So I want my body to be treated with respect. I want it to be put in a safe place where it's not going to be tampered with because my hope is in the Lord and my hope is to be resurrected. And so this idea of burial does, in a way, kind of give a, give a nod to or sort of indicate um, faith in a future resurrection. And so I believe that's, that's, that is what that could point to. Um, and then as far as, so that's sort of would be the norm. We see that mentioned throughout Scripture. Again, nowhere that I know of would require, there's no command that says you must be buried intact and there's, there's, there's no requirements. Um, cremation is also um, mentioned in the Bible. One time, and I didn't even know this until I started looking into this a little bit, but in Leviticus chapter 20, it's sort of indirectly, but this is actually um, a, this, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? instructions, I guess, for someone to be burned with fire if they engage in this sin. It's Leviticus 20, verse 14. If a man takes a woman and her mother also, it is depravity. He and they shall be burned with fire, that there may be no depravity among you. Whoa. So evidently it was a form of punishment in that case to be burned with fire. And so, um, and then and then another instance we see in 1 Samuel chapter 31 where, um, I'll read it, it says, when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead, and the inhabitant, the Jabesh-Gilead was a city that Saul had saved early in his time as a king of the um, nation of Israel. And Saul and his sons had been killed in battle, and the Philistines packed their bodies off, and they hung them up, and they basically, um, they used, they basically mistreated their bodies, and they were, um, sort of hung up in display of like, hey, we beat these guys, check it out. And they hung their bodies in the public square in order to like humiliate them and the nation. And it says, when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard this, the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. And they came to Jabesh and they burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. So this act of cremation or burning the bodies of Saul and his sons was actually, um, it was actually in order to honor their bodies and to honor um, Saul and his sons in order to keep them from being publicly humiliated. And so is cremation after death biblical? I don't know. <laughs> I don't think it's prohibited. Um, but... I, will, I would like to add this, and this is in 1 Corinthians 15, which I think is an important section to read here, is that, um, I'm going to read it first. 
1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 35. Um, This is a, a letter written to the church in Corinth, and evidently some of the people in the Corinthian church thousands of years ago had the same question about resurrection and what does it look like and what do we do and how's it going to work? So starting in verse 35, it says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? He says, you foolish person, what you sow does not come to life until unless it dies. And what you sow And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen. So essentially what he's saying is that, you know, when you plant a seed in the ground, you want to grow, you know, a stalk of corn or something. You put the seed in the ground and the seed dies. It rots away and it sprouts into something new. And it it, produces more seeds, but the point is this, is that the thing that grows is different than the thing that you planted. And so it's kind of a good illustration of like our bodies being buried. Yes, they will be resurrected, but it's not going to be in the same way. It's not going to be the same type of body. It's not going to be, it's going to be just different. And then down in verse uh, 42, he goes on, so is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man from heaven, so also those who are of heaven. So essentially what he's saying is, is basically the first part of that. He's saying, look, What's sown is imperishable, but is raised, sorry, what's sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. So our bodies that are planted in the ground, buried buried in the ground, are going to, are a whole lot different than what our resurrection bodies are going to look like. We're going to be a spiritual being. Our resurrection bodies are going to be new bodies. We're still going to be able to recognize each other, and they're still going to have some of the same senses that we have. I don't know exactly what it's going to be like. It's going to be awesome but it's going to be a whole lot different than the bodies we're in now. And so basically to, to say that, well, if I'm buried in the ground, God's able to resurrect me, but if I'm cremated, God's not able to resurrect me. Like, I just don't, I don't see how that could be true because God's able to do anything he wants to. Yeah. Nothing is too hard for God. And let's face it, when you get buried in the ground... You know, you're going to turn to dust one way or yeah, another. You're going to turn to worm food anyways. <laughs> it's just going to uh, speed up the process. Ecclesiastes chapter three says um, your body will be roost. It says all are from the dust and to dust all return, whether you're buried or burned. So also another thought I had was there are many believers who have been uh, buried at sea. Uh, I think of, you know, in the various wars that have been fought over the years. Uh, missing in action. We don't know what happened to their bodies. Um, 
I'm, plenty of uh, men in combat have been burned in explosions. Um, I, I have a hard time believing that any believer who uh, died a type of death like that, God would not be able to yeah. resurrect them from the dead or that they would have no hope of the resurrection. And um, also just the idea of that our hope of the resurrection, our hope of heaven, our hope of eternal life is not based on anything we do. It's based entirely on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so just in the same way where I don't say, I believe in Jesus, but I also, you know, tithe 10%, and I also um, am a good person as much as I can, and I also don't cuss, that's my hope of heaven. No, my hope of heaven is Jesus Christ. And I, I believe that holds true with this. My hope of the resurrection is in Jesus and the power of God to, to raise me from the dead, to, to resurrect my body. My hope of resurrection is not in some type of work of how I'm buried or not buried or how my body is disposed of, but my hope is in Jesus. So I would just say this. If you have a conviction one way or the other, praise the Lord. If you want to be buried in honor of indicating that you have hope in the resurrection, amen. Praise the Lord. Do it in faith and do it to honor God and that others will recognize that. And if you believe that you want to be cremated and then it doesn't matter because your hope is in Jesus of the resurrection, amen. Do that. Um, I believe we're, we have liberty and, and freedom in this area. So, All right. <clears throat> so my question is... Uh, what if a Christian backslides, goes deep into past sins again, and they died in that state, say they died suddenly with no chance to repent? How can they be saved from hell? I've always wondered because I was that man once. Thankfully, I did not die in my sin, um, have been brought back. Um, so a couple, couple scriptures he wrote here was uh, 1 Samuel fifteen twenty three. 23. Um, that's uh, where Samuel is referring to rebellion, um, the sin of rebellion being similar to the sin of witchcraft. Um, and then uh, Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. I just lost that spot, actually. Um, it talks about backsliding, and we're going to clarify that here in a little bit, but let me get to Hebrews 6. I did not mark that one. <laughs> the one that I was supposed to reference. Yeah, only, didn't mark it. Only every other verse. Uh, just to clarify something, these guys are all a lot smarter than me. And so um, all these tabs is because I've got uh, 14 tabs for this. Um, and really, I stand on God's word because you guys don't need to know my opinion. My opinion doesn't matter on this. Uh, God's word is what, is what we stand on and is what I know to be truth. And so that's what you guys need, and that's what uh, the person asking this question needs. So uh, the question, Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, says, For it is impossible to renew to repentance those who were enlightened, uh, who tested uh, the heavenly gift, become companions with the Holy Spirit, tasted God's word and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away because of their own harm. They are re-crucifying the Son of God and holding him up to contempt. Um, so we'll, we'll answer that with other verses here. So we're going to get into what I got going. So we've got to develop a few things, um, a few just basic principles first. Um, so, uh, talk about sin. So sin is sin, whether you've fallen deep into sin 
or you stub your toe and say a cuss word. Um, sin is sin, right? Uh, Romans six twenty three says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, the wages of sin is death. It doesn't matter if you've killed somebody or if I throw this water on Eric and make him mad, right? Um, either one of those is a sin. And believe it or not, they're both have the exact same punishment on the eternal side of things. It's death. Um, here in this world, there's different consequences for our sin, and the Lord disciplines us differently based on all that. But eternally, sin is sin. And it doesn't matter if you've sinned a ton or sinned once. The wages of sin is death. Okay? Uh, next one here is that we are robed in his righteousness. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, right? And so when you accept Christ, you are robed in his righteousness. You have become his righteousness because he was made sin for you and he was crushed and killed for you in your place. So the minute that you put your faith in Christ, you are robed in his righteousness. Practically, we're still garbage, right? We're still just, just wicked men and women. But, but positionally, like you are as righteous and perfect as you ever will be um, before the Lord. Kind of move on here. If, if a person who is coming to be a Christian is living a life controlled by sin, um, then I would argue that, that they aren't a Christian, right? If, if, if you are living a life controlled by sin, just like, like Mike was talking, just living in sin, not caring what the word says, not caring what your brothers and sisters um, at church say, just heck with them, I'm going to live the way I want. Um, there's, there's good argument that, that, uh, that you aren't saved. And so we'll go to Romans 6, uh, 6 through 7 for that. Uh, Romans 6, yeah, Romans 6, 6 through 7. And then I will also skip down and read 12 through 14 here. For we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that sin's dominion over the body may be abolished so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin since a person who has died, yeah, since a person who has died is freed from sin's claims. And then uh, 12 through 14. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires and do not offer any parts of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. But as those who are alive from the dead, uh, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of your, yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. For sin will not rule over you because you are not under the law, but under grace. Um, and then First John 1, 6 is where we're going to go next year. First John 1, 6. Uh, if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we are lying and are not practicing the truth, right? And so um, based off those verses, uh, I, I think it's very, very easy to say that if, if you are just choosing to live a life of sin with no, no conviction of the Holy Spirit, no, you don't, don't care, don't care what God's word says, um, I think it's fair to say that you, you're, you're most likely not saved. So now, as, as also was clarified earlier, we all struggle with sin. We all have sin in our life. 
Um, but there's a big difference between living in that sin and struggling with, with our sin um, and repenting and asking forgiveness. So um, if a person in this state who has been is just living in sin, if a person in this state denies Christ and walks away from the faith, then the Bible says he never truly knew him to begin with. So uh, 1 John 2.19. 1 John 2.19. Uh, there we are. So, they went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so that it, it might be made clear that none of them actually belongs to us. And then Second Timothy 2, 11 and 13, 11 through 13. I know, I, I flip a lot, but like I said, this is, this is what I stand on to be true, right? And so you guys don't need my opinion. You need, you need uh, the Word of God to clarify some things. So 2 Timothy 2, 11 and 13. Uh, this saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful or he cannot deny himself. And again, we all struggle with sin. Every one of us, we all, it's not anything that we will ever stop struggling with until we see him. When we see him, we'll be like him. But until that day, we will always struggle with it as long as, as, long as we just aren't like, well, I'm gonna struggle with sin. I'm just gonna start walking in it, right? That's a totally different st- scenario. So um, Romans 7, 13 and, uh, through 25. Therefore, so, yeah, there we go. Therefore, did what is good cause my death? Absolutely not. On the contrary, sin, in order to be recognized as sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that through the commandment, sin might become sinful beyond measure. Therefore, uh, for we, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am made out of flesh, sold into sin's power, for I do not understand what I am doing, because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh, for the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now if I do what I want, I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but the sin that lives in me. So I dis- discover this principle when I want to do good, evil is with me. For in my inner self, I joyfully agree with God's law, but I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. What a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind, I myself am a slave to the law of God, but with my flesh to the law of sin. Again, I've already kind of said it, but the difference is struggling with sin and just walking in sin, right? There's a huge difference. Um, and so we are, we're absolutely saved by grace. This part here is, uh, is kind of where we're going to be getting to. So we're, we're absolutely saved by grace, right? We aren't saved by anything that we've done. Um, any works that we do, and that includes, you know, um, different religions, Hail Marys, and all these different things to be forgiven. 
And so uh, we're going to go to Romans 4, 3 through 5. Romans 4, 3, and 3 through 5. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. Now to the one who works, pay is not considered as a gift, but as something owed. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him, um, who declares righteous the ungodly, his faith is credited for righteousness. Right? So you have faith in the Lord. You have been credited to righteousness. It's as plain as that. Uh, I'll, I'll reference Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. You guys can turn there if you want later. Um, but I'm going to Titus 3, 3 5, because um, that's just a sweet verse. Titus 3, 5. He saves us not by works of righteous, righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and the renewal by the Holy Spirit. It's not anything we've done. There's nothing that we can do to, to be any more righteous and, and right, right before the Lord as you are right now. It doesn't matter if you've sinned 10 minutes ago, any of the sins that you've committed in your past, it doesn't matter what you're going to do in the future. You are, you are as, as saved as you're going to be right now. Um, and it doesn't matter what you do. That's it. Jesus did it all for us. There is no, there's no work um, for you to do. He, we have been through the washing of regeneration and the renewal by the Holy Spirit. Um, I just love that. And it's just, it goes right back to it's a free gift, right? It's a gift. A gift doesn't cost you anything. You don't have to work for a gift. It is a gift. And, and it's free. And the Lord just gives it to us. But it wasn't free for him, right? Um, so uh, salvation is not based on our continued confession of sin, um, but rather the realization of our sin um, for a Savior at the time of salvation, right? Um, you get saved because you recognize that you're a sinner. You need to be saved from your sin. Oh, look, there's Jesus. He can save me from my sin. I'm a sinner, please save me, Jesus, right? Um, and obviously a big, very small nutshell there, that's, that's kind of the gospel, right? You recognize that you're a sinner, but, and you confess your sin there, and that is the point where you are reconciled to him, positionally, right? And so uh, Romans 10, 9 through 13. Uh, Romans 10, 9 through 13. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. With the, with the heart, one believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth, one confesses, resulting in salvation. Now the scripture says, no one who believes in him will be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, since the same Lord of all is rich to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Um, also going to go to John, 1 John 1, 9. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is kind of where it goes from, from salvation to relationship, right? From position to relationship. Um, I, 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 I got like a whole slew of kids. I don't really know how many there are. <laughs> It's funny, on the birthday, we just throw a birthday party like once every other month. It kind of makes up about the difference. And whoever blows out the candles first, they get to open the presents. And so, um, but when my son, <laughs> when my son 
I've got one boy and, and four girls. So when my son sins against me, right? Like he could sin against me, but when he does something wrong, something that I've told him not to do, directly disobeys me, it affects our relationship. And if he does that and there is like zero repentance, there's like zero, like, oh man, I'm sorry, dad. That's just, I'm, I know it hurt you. I just, I, you know, I just, I really screwed up, you know, and I, I, how can I make it right? I need to, I just, I want to be right with you, you know, and it just clears the air, right? If, if he, if he just sins and doesn't care and, and is just disobedient, it affects our relationship. And that's the same thing with God, right? We, we are saved. If you're a Christian, you're saved. Confessing your sin, it just, it just clears the air between you and the Lord so you can have a relationship with him. So there's no awkwardness. There's no weirdness, right? Um, it just, just opens up that communication, and uh, it's super important. It really is super important. So yeah, it's, as it's important to clear the air and have a relationship, confessing our sin before the Lord, um, and two brothers, too. It's super healing um, um, to confess your sin to other brothers, too, and that you can trust. But um, it's not about salvation at that point. It's about relationship with him, um, and that's super, super important. So, yeah, yeah, he's, he's still my son, right? That doesn't change. Yeah, that doesn't change at all. He's, he's still my son, and it, it, but the relationship is different, right? The relationship changes because there's that sin. There's something between us, right? There's tension. But the good thing is, like, he's a good father, right? He's a much better father than I'll ever be. Um, and all I have to do is, is come to him and, and, Lord, I'm sorry, forgive me. And the air is clear, right? We, he just, all right, I love you. Let's keep on moving on here, you know? So, um, so if a person is truly saved and has fallen back into sin and they die suddenly without confessing their sin, then they'll be with the Lord, right? If, if a person is truly saved and they die, it doesn't matter if you've, if you've fallen back to some of the old sin that you struggle with or if you cuss at whatever, flip some guy off driving down the road here and then die 30 seconds after that. Um, that unconfessed sin doesn't send you to hell. You're still going to be with the Lord um, because that sin's already been paid for. It's, it's not about you coming to the Lord, asking for forgiveness after you've already been saved. He's already done the work. It is finished. It is finished. He's done the work on the cross. You don't have to worry about it anymore. Um, and I will, I got two more scriptures here and I'll, I'll be done. So Philippians 3, 8 and 9. Philippians 3, 8 and 9. Just to kind of clarify those two, that, that last point here. Uh, Philippians. More than that, I also considered everything to be, wait, am I right? Yeah, Philippians 3, 8 and 9. More than that, I also considered everything to be lost in the view of surpassing value of knowing the Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and considered them filth so that I, I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God based on faith. Not works, but based on faith. And then uh, the last one here is Romans 8, 1. Just to finish up. Romans 8, 1. Therefore, no condemnation now exists for those in Christ Jesus. That's it. Once you're saved, 
there is no condemnation for those that exist for the Lord from the Lord that are in Christ Jesus. It's as simple as that. When you when you are truly saved and you die, whether it be unrepented sin or not, the relationship while you're here on earth is is hindered, but you are still going to be with the Lord. Yeah, I just kept I just keep looking at this paper here and this the where the question was written and the one line that just keeps standing out to me is says, How can they be saved from hell? Yeah. And is Jesus. I mean, it's mm-hmm. our salvation. Yeah. Like just Matt and Matt, just how Matt was saying, like whether you're, if you are born again, you are born again. If you are a child of God, you are a child of God. Nothing can change that. Once we accept Christ and we become a Christian, it's not like we, I'm a Christian today, but then tomorrow or, you know, yesterday I was really sinning and I just, if I had died yesterday, I wouldn't have gone to heaven. I would have gone to hell or, well, I was really good that day. So, you know, then I probably would have gone to heaven if I died that day. Like, that's not it at all. Like, our salvation is not based on how we're doing, how our works are, but we can be saved from hell by believing in Jesus, and that doesn't change. Yeah, I I think that we have this tendency to always go back to that works mentality, but it's like, no, you've been saved by grace, so you don't have a responsibility to be good. It's knowing what God saved you from, and understanding God's love and goodness for you that makes you respond yeah. to the Holy Spirit telling you to be good. It's not your responsibility because that, that's, that's like the works thing. That isn't what saved you. That isn't what is gonna keep you saved. It's all Jesus. But God has put his spirit inside of you that, that is there to guide you into doing what he knows is actually gonna lead to happiness instead of harm in your life. Yeah. And so... And that's a process of learning, right? We're, like it's a, it's a continual process until we're with Jesus like Matt quoted and we're like him. And so that wavers, it looks different in everyone's life, but there's, there's a desire to want what God wants for you after you're saved. It's not to want to go back to sin, even though that's something we can struggle with. We want to be saved from it. And knowing that we have been, we want to live in that new life free from it. Yeah. So, Amen. amen. I got a quick one here. Uh, let's see. Yeah, we got time. So um, let's see. If those who will be saved, if those who will, okay, I'm going to keep this short. I could make this long. No, I'm going to, I'm, I'm not going to get into the deep part of this. All right. So if those who will, if those who will be, be saved are the elect, does, does God still love those who are not? Okay, let me read, repeat that. If those who will be saved are the elect, does God still love those who are not? Now, the, 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 the doctrines of election and predestination, I'm not gonna talk about that because we're gonna talk about that in Romans. That's a long talk. We're not that far away. Stay tuned. But the, the question, if those who will be saved are the elect, does God still love those who are not? Or I'm guessing who are not elect. And the answer is yes. Because John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world as in everyone that has ever existed that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So there's no distinction in that verse between the elect and those that aren't elect or the other verses that talk about God loving whosoever, everyone. Um, So it would be a presumptuous statement basically to say that he only loves the elect because his word does not say that. 
And one of the truths that God's word clearly teaches that can be hard for us to understand in our minds or comprehend is that God loves us while at the same time he hates our sin. And some people feel the need to kind of go to one end or the other and they try to you know, go to verses like Psalm 5, 5 that talks about him hating those that are in sin and say, see, he, he, he hates those if you're a sinner. No, he does both. It, it, it's one of the, the mysteries of the Bible is that God loves you, yet he still hates your sin. But if you take the Bible as a whole, the verses that say he loves all and hates those in sin, they don't negate each other. They coexist, basically. And I think that's the important thing. If you're gonna take one side or the other, you're actually disregarding scripture and we don't wanna do that. Um, so yes, that's the answer. You guys got each gun, yeah, yeah. Okay, this is, uh, this is a great question. I appreciate this question. It says, how do I pray for someone with depression? How do I pray for someone with depression? That is a, that's a good question, a highly subjective question. I appreciate this person's heart to just be praying for others because we know how important that is. But um, I'm not really exactly sure how to answer this question, but one thing came to mind as I was praying about this, and this is the uh, example that of a lot of us, example in the Bible of someone who had a case of depression a lot of us probably know it. It's Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19. And the um, story is this. Elijah went up on uh, Mount Carmel, and he had this showdown with the prophets of Baal. And basically, he goes, hey, call to your God, and I'll call to my God, and we'll see which one shows up. And, of course, you know, they screamed and cut themselves and did all the things and tried to get Baal to show up. He never did. And Elijah... Um, Soaked every soaked this altar and the offering and everything down with water, and prayed a simple prayer, and the fire of God came down and consumed everything, and everyone was amazed, and it was this great victory for the Lord that day, and it was like this testimony, and for the people of God who were there, were like, "We'll worship the Lord," like, you know, we believe, and uh, it was awesome. It was a great victory, but after that, this uh, crazy lady named Jezebel, she goes. Uh, she's like, oh, I'm going to kill you for, for what you've done to the prophets of Baal. You know, uh, I'm going to chase you down and kill you like a dog. Or it was something like that. I'm paraphrasing, probably butchering it. But anyways, he runs away, runs into the hills and um, basically becomes depressed. He actually asks that he could die. And you might say he was a bit suicidal. Now, let's see here. First Kings chapter 19. Let me find my spot. Yeah. But he himself, speaking of Elijah, went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. The angel came again. He said, Rise and eat, for the journey is too great. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights. So essentially, Elijah, um, he shows up to this spot. He's all by himself. He's alone. And he asks just 
to be put to death. He's like, because he thought that he was alone, which we'll see later on, that this wasn't true. There was other followers of God um, that were in that area, but he was believing the lie that uh, he was by himself, that he was alone. And the first thing I'd like to just point out from this section right here is the very first thing that was provided for Elijah was food, water, and rest. And I just love that. The angel of the Lord appeared and hooked him up with some food and water and took a nap. And so I know this may seem super simple, but maybe this is what someone who is in a state of depression needs is just some rest and a good meal and some food and maybe an, you know, an angel to deliver it. <laughs> I don't know, but that might be a good way to pray. Just say, man, give this person rest. You know, give them peace. Um, verse 14. Uh, we'll move down to verse 14. Another thing I'd like to point out. Oh, sorry, I need to back up a little bit. He's in this cave. Elijah's in this cave. He's, he's rested up. He's got some food in his belly. And um, the Lord appears and he says, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. I'm sorry, we're in verse 11. The Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, I'll paraphrase it. After the wind, there was an earthquake. The Lord wasn't in the earthquake. And then after earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. <clears throat> and then after that, the sound of a low whisper. So there's these earthquakes and fires and all this crazy stuff happening, but the Lord wasn't there. But then after all that, there was the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And the next thing that I just like to point out is that the thing that Elijah needed to hear was the voice of the Lord. And I believe anyone in a state of depression Anyone even not in a state of depression needs to hear the voice of the Lord, amen? Like that's what we we need to be in connection with the Lord and just to experience um, hearing the voice of the Lord, maybe not hearing it audibly, but just sensing the Holy Spirit, sensing the comfort and the presence of God in our lives, right? Um, it's just a great encouragement to us. And I think this is a, a great thing we can pray for, for someone suffering uh, with depression, it's just that they would hear the voice of the Lord. And then in, in verse 14, Elijah says, I've been very jealous for the Lord, for the God of hosts, the people of Israel, forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. I am the only one left, God. I'm the only one that believes in you. I'm the only one that's faithful. There's no one else out there. I'm all alone. Was that true? No, it wasn't true. Down here uh, later on, it says, God says, I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal. Evidently, there was 7,000 people, knees, in, in Israel that had not bowed the knee to Baal. Elijah was believing the lie that he was all alone, and it just wasn't true. And God showed up with a still, small voice, gave Elijah some instructions and said, Elijah, you are not alone. 
There's 7,000 still, man. It's okay. And um, I think this is just something that we can pray for people suffering from depression. Maybe they're believing a lie. It's just not true. They're believing that they're all alone. They're believing that no one cares about me. I'm worthless. Might as well just end it all. Those things just are not true. God cares about you very much. And uh, these are all good things to pray for. Um, Also, just some other tips for just prayer in general, but especially praying for someone suffering with depression, just to pray scripture. It's super helpful when we're praying just to, maybe if you don't have it memorized, I encourage you to memorize scripture verses. Memorize your favorite scripture verses so that you can bring them to your remembrance so that the Holy Spirit can bring them to your remembrance as you're praying. Even if you have to read them, you know, you don't have to have your eyes closed to pray. You just read them out of the Bible. Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. That's a promise, okay? If someone has a broken heart, the Lord is close to them. That's something we can pray for that person, pray in the presence of that person, remind them of that. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. So another promise. Man, the closeness of God and the comfort of God. He's the God of a little bit of comfort, a God of some comfort. Come on, you guys. <laughs> it's the God of all comfort. And he comforts us in our affliction. So that's a good thing to pray. One last thing. Really, these are, I think, it's just kind of interesting, encouraging to me to read through this, and good tips, I guess, for prayer. But uh, really, the best way to pray is with the help of the Holy Spirit. And in Romans 8, oh, I actually printed it out here. It says this, uh, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And really, at the end of the day, most of the time, I don't, I don't know what to pray for, if I'm honest. I don't even know what to pray for for my own life, let alone someone else's life who I know is struggling. And so we can just pray to the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, asking, Lord, I don't know what this person needs, but I know that you are. The Word says the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Please intercede for my brother, for my sister suffering with depression in accordance with your will, that they would be delivered, that they would be encouraged. Ask the Holy Spirit to help because the Spirit is where we get, that. I mean, that's, that's the power is in the Holy Spirit. It's not necessarily um, how we say it, what we say or how we say it, but the one who we're praying to, amen? So that's what I got. Anything to add? All right. So uh, the question was, how do we, how do we recognize, uh, specifically it was like, um, celebrity false teachers, right? Um, but really, false teachers are pretty easy to point out if you know the word, right? Um, you know, so a few things about false teachers, they're, the main ones here is they prey on the spiritually immature, right? Um, they distort scripture to make it say whatever they want to fit their narrative, to fit the culture, to gain popularity. Um, and false teaching stems from um, ignorance on the teacher's part. Maybe they're 
false teachers by accident. They just think they're teaching correctly, but they're not. Um, uh, personal uh, monetary gain or popularity, right? They want to get rich, so they're going to teach whatever they can to fill the butts, you know, fill the seats with butts and, and get a bigger tithe. Um, and just popularity on Facebook and all that kind of stuff. Um, and some of it is just deception from the enemy, right? The enemy is getting them to, to using them to spread all this false doctrine to throw off a bunch of people from be, being saved and walking in a manner that glorifies the Lord's name, right? And so, um, um, but the biggest thing is they cause division in the church, right? And so, um, 1 Corinthians 11, uh, first, I'm going to go through this pretty quick here. So 1 Corinthians 11, 3 and 4, um, Paul's talking to the church of Corinth. Uh, but I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is, oh, wait, am I on the wrong? No, I'm on the right one. 11.3. You know, that was right. Yeah, but I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of every woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who prays or prophesies with something on his head is, no, I, I maybe, yeah, I, I must have meant to go to Second Corinthians here. Yeah. <laughs> False, yeah, yep, ignorance. See how they, see, see, can happen to anybody. There we go. But I fear that as the, uh, the serpent deceive you by his cunning, your minds may be corrupted from a complete and pure devotion to Christ. For a person comes and preaches another Jesus from whom we did not preach, or you receive a different spirit which you had not received, or a different gospel from which you had not accepted, you put up with it splendidly right? Because they didn't know the real thing, right? They didn't know the word, so they put up with it splendidly because it tickles their ears, right? It makes them happy. It makes them feel good. The teacher's just kind of preaching whatever, whatever they're going to make people feel good um, to get butts in the seats, to, to, and the enemy uses that to deceive people. Uh, we will go to Second Peter 3.16. Second Peter 3.16. Um, he speaks about these things in all his letters in which there are some matters that are hard to understand. The untaught and unstable twist them to their own destruction as they also do with the rest of the scriptures. Let's go to 1 Timothy. There's a lot to say. Paul's got a lot to say to Timothy about, about false teachers, right? Timothy's a young, young pastor. Um, he's kind of giving him pointers here and there and just giving him some warnings about false teachers coming into his church. First um, Timothy 1, 3 to 7. As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach other doctrine or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. These promote en- empty speculations rather than God's plan, which operates by faith. Now, the goal of our insurrection is love from a pure heart a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Some have deviated from these and turned aside to fruitless dissensions. They want to be teachers of the law, although they don't understand what they are saying or what they are insisting on, right? And so um, let's go to four, let's go four, one through three real quick. Uh, Four, one through three. Now the Spirit explicitly says, in the, lat- in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the hypocrisy of liars uh, whose consciences are seared 
They forbid marriage and demand abstinence from foods that, are God, that God created to be received with gratitude by those who believe and know the truth. First uh, Timothy 6, 3 to 5. 6, 3 to 5. If anyone teaches other doctrine and does not agree with the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the teaching that promotes godliness, he is conceited, understanding nothing, but having a sick interest in disputes and arguments over words. From these come envy, quarreling, slanders, evil suspicions, and constant disagreements among men whose minds are depraved, depraved and deprived of the truth. And constant disagreements among men whose minds are depraved and deprived from the truth, who imagine that godless Godliness is a way to material gain. Um, and the last one is Romans 16, 17, and 18. 16, 17, through 18. Now I implore you, brothers, watch out for those who cause dissensions and pitfalls contrary to the, doc- to the doctrine you have learned. Avoid them. For such people do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and they smooth talk and flattering words. They deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. You guys, the, the main reason why false teachers are so popular is because they preach to the culture, and the vast majority of Christians are very, very, well, that's kind of the wrong way to go about it. They're, they're not knowledgeable about the Bible. They don't know the truth. So they don't know, you know, Chris has used this analogy tons of times. People study dollar bills, hundreds, I guess. They know the original thing. They don't study the, the false ones. They study the original thing. They, tr- they, they study the truth. So they know when they hear something wrong. So if you know this, you're not going to be going after a false teacher because you know what's true, right? You know the word. You know what's true. You know what's right and what's wrong. Yeah, one thing that I would just add really quick, because I think it's the greatest example of how to prevent yourself from being deceived, um, is given to us in Acts 17 when Paul and Silas come to Berea. Because it says, starting in verse 10, it says, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So Paul and Silas come, they're teaching the word. It sounds good to them, but then they look at the word of God to make sure it's actually what they were saying was actually true. And that should be the habit of any Christian. And sadly, it's not the habit of quite a few in that they don't ever open up the Bible themselves and they just listen to what is being told to them and they assume that it's truth. And in the world we live in today, that's a grave mistake. It's like you want to know it for yourself. And in order to do that, you have to study the scriptures. And I've seen even well-meaning Christians that want to know truth, but, you know, they'll listen to a podcast or something and, and, you know, they're like, what do you think about this? And I'm like, I think it's untrue because that's not what the word says. And it's like, have you looked at the word? It's like, they're just listening to what they're being told and it sounds good, but it's not what the word of God actually says. And so we have to be those that are like the Bereans that get in the habit of not believing anything unless we've read it for ourselves and see that the word of God actually says what is being told to us.
I just had a couple things to add. If you, I don't, I'm doing this off the top of my noggin, so sorry. But Second Peter, um, chapter two is a whole chapter on false teachers and Jude. And some of the interesting things there. These guys did a good job covering the doctrine side of it, <clears throat> but. It's interesting in Jude and Peter's warning to his to their hearers. He, he doesn't bring up those topics per se. He alludes to them, but he talks about their character. He talks about their character. And so a Christian is someone who's been, Matt did a great job, been born again by the Spirit of God. And, and therefore, as the Lord is working in your life, is going to begin to exhibit the character of Christ in their life. And so we, we talked about this, I think, at our last Q&A, that the qualifications for an elder um, in a church are, are uh, primarily character about character. It's not necessarily about their giftedness, how good they speak, or any of those things. It's about their character. And so Peter and Jude both say, hey, here's some things you can tell. If a guy's a false teacher, you're going to see a few things. It's going to be about authority. So his, they're going to be about their own authority, right? you got to submit to me. And these dreams that I'm having are telling me what to do with your life. He talks specifically about that in Jude. They take authority from their dreams. And then there's immorality and a love of money that Matt brought up. So there's those are three tells. Basically, he says, Check the character of their life. Does this guy look like Jesus? And the reason I bring that up is because a lot of times in our world, they like Matt says, where you have people preaching to the culture or whatever, they're very well-spoken, articulate. They may even be very knowledgeable. You know, they may know more than me or you. But if you look at their life, you're like, man, this guy's really smart and he's making a lot of sense in these ways. But I look at his life and he's harsh with people. He's really authoritative and like heavy-handed or he he's, seems like he's a chasing the money or chasing the women or something like that. Like that's a, that's a hard pass. Like that's your tell right there that... They're out to lunch besides the, the doctrine, as they said. Amen. Well, we're out of time tonight. So thank you guys for joining us. And again, feel free to ask questions. We have multiple ways you can do that. You can fill out the church bulletin card on the, there's like a place where you can fill a question in and then just fold it up, put it at the info desk. You can send them through social media. Uh, you guys, if you have our personal numbers or the church email, you can send them to us or just come up and ask us. A couple of them, people just handed them to me. So, But we definitely want to take the time to answer any questions you have. So thank you guys for joining us, and we'll see you next month.